Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. You can find me on Instagram with the account at BooksBeatles, where I'm archiving and discussing my collection of Beatles books. My guest today is historian and author Erin Torkelson Webber, who joins me to discuss her book, The Beatles and the Historians. Erin's book, The First of Its Kind, examines the Beatles' historiography, exploring the four major narratives that have developed over time. Erin acknowledges the genius of the Beatles while revealing the unnecessary mythology that misled so many fans for so long. Erin Talkson Weber, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for asking. We're here to talk about uh, the, the Beatles and the historians. Um, I thought it would be a, a traditional and interesting way to start by just asking uh, if you could kindly describe your kind of background um, and how that led you to writing the, the Beatles and the historians. I actually started reading the Beatles as a casual fan in that I had paid some attention to them, and there's a little background necessary. I was born in 1981, so obviously I missed the actual Beatles period, and obviously the main parts of the solo period, the 1970s. I was a freshman in high school when Anthology came out, and I paid some attention to it, but I watched A Hard Day's Night once or twice in high school, and I did have Beatles songs in my collection of songs, but I was not a die-hard fan. I didn't know all that much about their story. I knew who Yoko Ono was, I knew who all the Beatles were, but if you had asked me who Neil Aspinall was, I would have had no idea. But I did know that they were regarded as the greatest band of all time, and I wanted to know why. Basically, that presented to me as a hypothesis, and so I just happened to be in my library branch one uh, one time a couple years ago, and I think it was Bob Spitz's Beatles biography. And I picked it up because I wanted to I wanted to see this hypothesis proven. And the issue became that I became hooked on the story. It was so fascinating and compelling, and I just found the story itself amazing and very interesting. But at the same time, I teach history to college students. And I had been trained in historical methods, which is how you analyze sources, whether they're documents or interviews or relics, which are basically artifacts in a lot of cases. And I had also been trained to examine the historiography of a subject, which is the long arc of how a historical subject is told over decades or centuries. And so even as I got engrossed in the story, and I was reading these Beatles books, and I read almost nothing but Beatles books for a year as a casual fan. I read other things for work, but that was what I was reading for pleasure. And as I went through the story, I loved the story, but I was frankly appalled at the lack of analysis, the lack of methodology, and it fit perfectly with historiographical arcs that I had studied for other subjects. And so the book really was very easy to write. I sat down and wrote out the outline for the entire book in an hour and a half. Because after I'd read those Beatles books for a year, it was very clear to me, and I think it would be clear to anyone who had studied historical methods or historiography, how very well the Beatles story fits in that particular arc. So 
you said it was easy. What is it about the kind of Beatles story that lends itself so well to this kind of analysis? Do you think you could do this with, you know, Bob Dylan or David Bowie or something? Is there something special about the, the way the Beatles were written about? I'm not too sure about that. Quite honestly, I'm not all that familiar with the study of Bob Dylan. I do believe you probably could. However, I do think that there is an aspect to the Beatles story because you have those four different individuals that plays a significant role in the shape of their historiography and how it's been told. So I'm not certain what contrasting perspectives you could say that you would get with a Dylan study. Uh, So you mentioned the number four there. We're going to go back to number four because the the kind of theory of the book part of the, the kind of centrality of the book is is these four different themes the, the the four different tellings if you will of the of the Beatles kind of story the the Fab Four narrative the Lenin Remembers narrative uh, the Shout narrative and then the, the Lewison narrative so uh, hopefully we could have a, a kind of a, a little chat about about some of those the Fab Four narrative um, which is the idea that the Beatles how the Beatles story was presented by themselves and, and, and those that, that worked for them, this idea of the Beatles as kind of a sitcom family as presented in, in Hard Day's Night and, and, and other things. Um, I, I kind of wanted to look at Lennon Remembers and, and how that related to the kind of the shattering of that, of that narrative. Um, that's, that is one interview that one person, one man gave on, on, on one day, and yet the, the impact that it had across the Beatles story was, you know, I think you'll, hopefully you'll agree that it, it was seismic. If you can, what was it about that, that one interview and that kind of made it so important and, and caused so much damage to that Fab Four narrative? Well, evaluating it as a historian, one of the major elements is it is a primary source. And so it can't be ignored, but it absolutely has to be evaluated. And one of the fundamental flaws that I ran across from my earliest days in reading Beatles history is that many, many authors have used it without evaluating or analyzing it. So it is a primary source and that's an aspect of it. Number two, Jan Wenner, the publisher of Rolling Stone, has promoted it as gospel against John's protests, it should be noted, for 30 years at least. And it's in his magazine's best interest to promote it as gospel because it's the greatest journalistic coup that Rolling Stone ever got. It's the, it's the interview that made Rolling Stone's reputation. And so even though we know John did not want Winner to publish it as a book, Winner did. And that publishing it as a book, I think, is also a major reason why it becomes this cornerstone interview being able to easily access a resource for other authors means that you're going to see that interview or that resource cited by secondary authors. And Lennon Remembers is easy to find and it covers so many different topics too. So if you want to know John's views on everything from Mick Jagger to Charles Manson, you can go to that interview and you can find material. So I think a lot of those elements, as well as Rolling Stone's own position in that time period, it was this bridge, I think some other authors have described it, between the counterculture and 
maybe not the establishment, but mass media. And so that also played a big role. And it had a fairly big subscription in that time period. I'm trying to remember perhaps 100,000, or maybe I'm even lowballing it with that. And then finally, one of the elements that really goes into that is that Paul had issued the McCartney press release months earlier, and that had ended the Beatles, but he didn't offer a new version of the Beatles when he did. He just basically said the Beatles are done and left a vacuum. And what Lennon Remembers did is that it offered a new version of Beatles history. And, you know, nature abhorbs a vacuum. So does historiography. We need a narrative. We need a version of events. Paul ended one version of events but didn't provide a new one. And John provided a very compelling version of events that also happened to work with the politicization of the time period. If you could, looking at it now, or rather looking at it when you were writing the book, what are the obvious kind of merits and faults of Lillian Remembers as a source? Well, the merits are, number one, it is, again, a primary source. And so it is unignorable. It is John getting some things off his chest and revealing things that the Beatles had tended not to want to discuss, shall we say, when they were pushing the Fab Four narrative. In terms of its faults, you have the aspect of John's drug use in that time period and also his previous drug use during the breakup period. And the reality is that according to historical methods, if your degree of attention is compromised, then your value as a source is compromised. And we have evidence of John certainly using heroin in the breakup period, which mm. logically you can presume is going to compromise his degree of attention. You also have the reality that it is in part a very emotionally driven interview, which makes it very compelling. But again, that's something that, according to historical methods, compromises your objectivity, your level of observation, and therefore your value as a source. And then we also have John in later interviews acknowledging that he lied in Lennon Remembers about specific topics and particularly about his songwriting partnership with Paul. It's also a very contradictory interview in that you have John saying something on page 17 and then saying the exact opposite on page 45 <laughs> which is very job very job yes yes and that's a marvelous part of him as a source but it's also something that needs to be acknowledged and was not for a very long time mm. so 10 years on from that that interview uh, which is you know a, a long time in in beetle world um he sits down again does john and he, he gives another even lengthier interview to uh, another major US publication, uh, which is this time happens to be Playboy and happens to be David Sheff. I was wondering what your kind of views were on, on that interview, maybe specifically in comparison to, to the Rolling Stone interview. Do you think this is a more reliable and sound maybe interview uh, that, that John gave us compared to the, the Rolling Stone interview? Well, I do think both interviews suffer due to the interviewer. I think Chef was relatively inexperienced in this time period. And there are some subjects that John introduces that Chef very frustratingly 
does not pursue. And that's not to single out chef because this is something you see across the board in Beatles historiography. Mm. You see it in interviews with John as well as Paul. And I think that's something. And Wenner is also an unquestioning interviewer. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. He is very willing to take everything John says in Lennon Remembers as gospel and in some cases seemingly prompts John to go on a more negative track on certain subjects. So in that area, Playboy doesn't have a great interviewer, I would say. Again, not to overly criticize Chef. You do have a less extremity of emotion I believe in the Playboy interview. And again, according to methods, that is important. You do have an agenda, of course, because you're going to have an agenda really with any public source, but it's not quite as extreme as it is in Lennon Remembers. And I also think it's important that during the Playboy interview, there aren't really any outstanding legal and financial debates going on in that time period. Mm. So you do obviously have issues as to whether the Beatles are eventually going to reunite. And of course there are always business issues going on, but nothing as severe as the dispute over the managerial position. Mm. And that was such a crucial aspect of the Lennon Remembers interview was John and Yoko promoting Klein as the only choice for Beatles manager. And not only that, but also arguing that if you can't see that Klein is the only choice for Beatles manager, then there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So removing that rather toxic aspect from the, from the Lennon Remembers interview or not having it exist in the Playboy interview that helps considerably. Again, it's, a, it's an interview where John contradicts himself. It's an interview where further evidence has indicates that he wasn't being 100% accurate on certain subjects. It is extremely valuable for John's attribution of song credits mm, yeah. because, of course, we don't get another chance to have that discussion with John. No. And because of that, it's, I think in my book, I refer to it as a necessary check on McCartney, being able to say any number of evaluations on songwriting credits. Mm. So it is extremely valuable in that regard. Although, again, it's also an attribution that tends to focus primarily, number one, on lyrics to a lesser extent on melody and other authors who are more familiar with musical analysis will say that ignores a lot of arrangement and production, which tend to be areas that were Paul's strengths. I think contradictions are an interesting way of looking at it. Um, His contradictions in in that interview about Paul, I think uh, are really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen Paul does an interview in mid November with good morning America. Um, where they, it's a satellite interview with him and Linda. It's around Thanksgiving because they're talking to Linda about Thanksgiving. And obviously by this point, this, the interview must have been on the, on the newsstand because the interviewer, forgive me, I can't remember the host of Good Morning America in 1979, uh, sorry, 1980. Um, and he mentioned some of the things to Paul that John 
says about him in the Playboy interview. And he says, oh, uh, you know, he was dead creatively and he would knock on the door and, and I would have to turn him away and stuff. And Paul, very statesmanlike, says, oh, I don't talk about him, you know, because he gets uh, upset, which is a fascinating little window into maybe what an early 80s Lennon McCartney relationship would have been. But I'm always so angry that, uh, that interviewer, obviously not a Beatles scholar, just a, a, a you know a, a TV host, picked out those parts of the interview to mention to Paul that one moment with Paul that he had. Whereas, of course, you know, as you know, John was incredibly complimentary about Paul's songwriting uh, and and him as a person at, at that time. And I, I just I just always find it find it so frustrating. That's it's, it's extremely frustrating, and there are many interviews in print and on television that I have seen with the Beatles where the interviewer frustrates me greatly with the questions that they choose to ask or not ask and the examples they use that skew the interview. And that's why one of the things that I try to have readers of my book understand is that it matters a great deal who the interviewer is. Obviously the next kind of, uh, chapter if you will of of the book of the piece is the shout narrative which i'm sure 99.9 percent of the listeners to this podcast will know shout was a book that was published in 1981 by the author philip norman a tremendously influential piece of of beetle literature um my first question is why do you think this this one biography was so influential over the next certainly 15, maybe even 20 years of, of kind of Beatle literature? Timing is crucial in a, in a historiography. When something comes out is crucial. And I would argue one of the reasons that Ian MacDonald's Revolution in the Head is so crucial is because of when it was published. Shout has the double whammy of, number one, being the first major biography to come out after Hunter Davies' authorized biography. And number two incidentally and tragically, coming out in March 1981, a few months after John Lennon's murder. So you have millions of grieving fans who want to get the story, essentially, that they didn't get from Davies, particularly elements regarding the breakup. So that's a major part of it, the timing. You also have some of the issues with Shout is he had access to good sources. Now, you have to read closely in order to determine that, but he did have access to Davies's notes. He didn't cite those notes, which is extremely frustrating, but that's an excellent primary source. You also have some good elements in Shout, some good subjects that I believe Norman covered more closely than previous works had. I think his discussion of seal tab, for example, is very good. And some of his descriptions of the time in Hamburg, he had some good evidence there or some good writing there, I guess you could say. Mm. And another element of it is simply Norman is a very, very good writer. Mm. And I would regard him as one of the top five writers just stylistically in Beatles historiography. His writing is vivid, it's evocative, and it's very visual. Some of Norman's sentences, you can see what he's describing. Now, having said that, historical methods tells us very clearly, just because the style is superior, 
does not mean that the methodology is superior. However, we as human beings and as readers are programmed to better remember and appreciate good writing. That's simply a reality. And again, I'm a college professor. I read research papers quite often, and <laughs> some of them are not enjoyable. Methodologically, they're correct, but the writing is very poor. Or you can see that in numerous history books. Unfortunately, this is something that history really struggles with. You will find books that have flawless methodology that are dry as toast. And you can read the same page two or three or four times, but you have to strain to remember what the author is saying because their writing is so poor. But Norman's is so very good that, especially if you're someone who's not familiar with source analysis, it helps, it helps you remember it. And because it was that first major biography to come out post John's death, that really helped cement it. This is the definitive biography. That's what the New York Times described it as. Do you think it's still got a use now? You know, I mean, it's, do you think if you had like a 16-year-old, whatever, that was just getting into the Beatles and wanted to find just a basic kind of entry-level biography of the Beatles, would you, would you hand them shout with a few kind of um, warnings? Or, or do you think it's now, you know, sort of redundant? I would not suggest Shout as your basic biography to any Beatles reader. And okay. there, <laughs> there are a number of reasons for that. There is the lack of documentation. There is the lack of bibliography. There is the admitted serious bias, not only directed towards Paul McCartney, but also the marginalization of George Harrison and Ringo Starr. And also... I think the reality is now that we have superior biographies, methodologically superior, and in at least one case, in terms of writing style, I find Jonathan Gould's Beatles biography to be superior in every way, basically, to Shout. And one of the things Gould does is he does his documentation, and he provides a bibliography. And he doesn't have the acknowledged bias against one member of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership. And he does grant some attention, if you will, to George Harrison and Ringo Starr. So at this point in Beatles historiography, because we have superior options, again, Gould would be one, Hertzgard would be one, I would not suggest giving any novice Beatles reader shout because it is such a fundamentally flawed book. And especially if it's your introduction into Beatles historiography, it's difficult for some people to move on or revise from their first introduction to a subject. You get locked into what your first interpretation is and you have to be open-minded enough and willing enough to look at further evidence and that's why I think it, it would not be a good idea. Now, there are certain areas of shout that I think if you are another author that you could use. Again, his discussion of Hamburg, Seal Tab, certain elements regarding Brian Epstein. But for a fundamental basis for the band, no author 
should use shout. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've wondered what, what you thought, I mean, obviously now, as, you know, as we've just said, you know, the shout narrative, although it's still around in, in kind of Beatledom, it's had nowhere near the weight that it had through the 80s into the 90s. Um, I was wondering what, what you felt were the kind of key moments in the, the destruction almost of, of the shout narrative moving through the kind of late 90s into the early noughties. Uh, do you think that the publication of many years from now was a key kind of driver of that? I think it was one of the three major elements that really pushed against the shout narrative and led to its decline. In my book, I say that there are three major elements that lead to its decline. And one is the publication of previously unavailable primary sources. And number two is the concept of what we refer to as historical distance. So it's the passage of time that allows for more impartial evaluation. And also, to use a cliche, seeing the forest for the trees, being able to greater see the arc of a historiography. And number three is Paul's pushing his version of Beatles historiography. And a major aspect of that is many years from now. Many years from now is the cornerstone source, if you will, of Paul's promotion. But it's certainly not the only one, because what I see is that starting in approximately about 1988, 1989 with his world tour booklet is when Paul starts using the press to argue against the Lennon remembers and the shout versions of his relationship with John, of their songwriting partnership, of the history of the Beatles. And he really continues that in my estimation up through or until Linda's death. Mm. I suppose something else is that, you know, through the eighties, even though Paul's, you can never say Paul was not not busy. You know, through the eighties, there's albums, there's a, a somewhat misguided feature film, etc. But he's not playing live, um, right. so, so he's not playing any any Beatles songs. The previous Wings tours that he'd done through the late, even the the seventy nine seventy nine Wings tour, very limited number of of Beatles songs on that. As you say, that the flowers in the dirt booklet and that live tour. That sort of, I think that, that set list is 60, 65% Beatles songs, which is a massive up t- uptick from the 79 um, <laughs> tour. So he starts to kind of reclaim that, doesn't he, a little bit through there. And the other thing is, I think, for me, it's the Salovich interview that he gives for Q in middle of 86 that's almost the first which is a wonderful interview a very honest interview that's the first interview really that you get the sense he's he's not kind of mourning John anymore you know a lot of those interviews that he gives around tug of war and around pipes of peace certainly the interviewer naturally will ask about about John this is only two three four years in in the past you know but by the time you get to 86 and then that sets into flowers in the dirt I think he maybe he felt like he didn't have to mourn John as much. He would still get asked about John. He's, you know, he's asked about John this very weekend that we're talking now. Yes. There's a Sunday Times interview where he's asked about John. But but I, I felt for me yeah, that the Salovich kind of is the the kind of door into the into him starting to kind of reclaim stuff again. Yes, absolutely. I think the Salovich interview is marvelous, and really one of the issues that you always have to pay attention to is is when evidence becomes available and if you look at paul biographies that were published prior to the publication of many years from now 
many of them are taking information from the Salovich interview. Mm. And that's pretty important because they are excellent interviews. They cover a wide range of subjects. And the difference, of course, with many years from now is that it's, oh gosh, 600, 700 pages. I'm trying to remember exactly how long many years from now is. And it covers so many subjects in depth that the Selovich interviews now buttress it. But there's no doubt that many years from now is Paul's cornerstone interview. It's like Lennon Remembers or the Playboy interview in the respect that it's easy to access and it will be your first go-to source if you are an author or a fan and you want to know, well, what does Paul McCartney think regarding this? And so you go to many years from now. Uh, so let's let's move on from that, and we're going to have to talk about um, Mark Lewisham. Uh, so obviously he he enters the story on Shout, of course, somewhat ironically. He's uh, he's, a, he's a researcher, isn't he? On on Shout, he, he found out some stuff for for Philip Norman that that went into there. I was wondering, is there a moment when you think he becomes important in Beale's historiography? Is there like a is there a time and and you mentioned some of those other books there, The Gould, Hertzgard, Spitz even. Um, do you think those books take their influence from, from Lewison as, as much as they do from things like Shout? I would say the time period or the moment when Lewison elevated himself was with the publication of the Complete Beatles recording sessions. Okay. Because those are such crucial primary sources. Now, I'm going to get very historical methods specific here because okay. it's, it's a tricky area in that I actually discussed this with another history professor, and she agreed with this evaluation. Lewison's analysis of the songs are not primary sources. The documentation that he provides in that book, those are primary sources. Because essentially what Lewison is doing when he's telling us, you know, for example, take four of this song was the best version. The issue there is it's still a translation through Lewison. Okay. And a translation is not a primary source. So just being, again, very pedantic <laughs> when, it comes to, when it comes to historical analysis. But I do think those... Uh, those sources that are provided in that book were so crucial to how Beatles historiography evolves from that time, from that time period, from that point. Um, as for Lewison's influence on Gould or Hertzgard, I'm not really sure about that. I would have to read more of Gould's and Hertzgard's other works on other subjects in order to make that evaluation i would guess and this is just a guess i want to clarify that okay. at least in terms of gould i don't think so i do think obviously he uses lewison as a source but both gould and hertzgard display in their works source analysis or evaluation of various interviews for example, Hertzgard is the first secondary source I have come across chronologically who says of Lennon Remembers, this is a very important primary source 
but you have to evaluate it and analyze it and you can't take it as gospel. Mm. So I would have to look further into the context of their work to make that evaluation. Okay. Um, so obviously in 2013, Mark Lewison produces volume one of, of Tune In, which I, I think it's safe to say is, is unlike anything that had, had come before in Beatle historiography and Beatle literature. Did you read the, the, the big, big kind of two volume one for this, for this project or did you, did you read the, the kind of abridged one? That is a funny story. I read the abridged one because it was difficult for a time to get the extended edition in the United States because evidently they believe that Americans do not have the attention span for that, which is rather insulting. (laughs) So I did use the abridged edition in my book and then I later ordered the extended edition as my birthday present (laughs) and they sent me two editions of volume one. So I do not have volume two. I have the extended edition of volume one twice. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that was not great. <laughs> no. Uh, well, what I was going to ask was um, looking at it, looking at the, obviously the, the version that, that you've read, what are the kind of particular strengths of, of, of tune in um, as compared to the, the other books that we've, that we've talked about? Well, first and foremost, What I do when I open any Beatles book, regardless of when it was published or who wrote it, is I flip right to the back and I look at their works cited and I look at their bibliography. I look at their documentation and I also look to see what source analysis they include. And so for me, that is the greatest strength of Lewison because interpretations change analysis changes and you see this in the historiography of countless subjects that we start out understanding it or interpreting it one way and then decades later we have a very different interpretation so what matters the most to me regarding any book is documentation and evidence what evidence do they offer and that's lewison's greatest strength i also think he does an, a good job of covering and discussing George and Ringo because as well as of course also George Martin, Neil Aspinall um, and Brian Epstein because I do believe that certain authors simply it appears and I'm hypothesizing they themselves were not that interested in George and Ringo and so they did not pay much attention to them in group biographies which gives us an inaccurate version of the band's dynamics and certainly of its creative ethos. So those were the two major strengths that I came away with in regards to Lewison's work. I'm a, I'm a sucker for documentation <laughs> and evidence, and I think he did a very good job with that. What other kind of issues do you think he's going to have to be aware of for Volume 2? Do you think Volume 2 is going to be a, a entirely different challenge for him? For Volume 2... I wonder how he's going to be able to keep that balance, if you will, given how much the story is going to expand. One of the issues with volume two that's going to crop up as well is when you're dealing with volume one, the Beatles end the book on the cusp of fame. Hmm. And with volume two, they will become famous first, of course, in Britain and then 
around the world. And that is going to become an issue when it comes to source analysis, because one of the basic aspects of source analysis is that the more public oriented a source was designed to be, say, an interview or a public speech, then the more agenda driven it is. And so you have, of course, like John's private letters to Cynthia that he's writing in Hamburg. Those are excellent primary sources in that they weren't intended to be public. But then you get into 1964, 1965, the Beatles reach this point where eventually they realize that almost everything they say and do, sometimes even in conversations that are supposed to be private, they're going to become public. Mm. And that's an element that he didn't really have to deal with in the first edition. I think it's fascinating that no one's asked Paul about that book in the last seven years. They did an, he did a GQ interview recently and they asked Paul about the, the Craig Brown book, one, two, three, four, or in the States, I think it's called 150 glimpses of the Beatles, yeah. um, which we won't get into now, but is for me somewhat, quite a long way down the ladder shall we say uh, and to my knowledge no one's ever asked Paul you know Lewiston obviously worked for Paul for 10 years eight eight nine ten years whatever and as far as I'm aware anyway from the interviews I read no one's ever said to him have you read this Mark Lewiston book I, I don't know whether or not maybe he's decided not to talk about it um, but you know there's a lot of information in there that you think maybe Paul let alone you know Ringo or, or the families of, of John and George don't know about it's it's just an interesting point I thought Oh, I think that would be, I would love to do an interview with Paul just asking him about his level of awareness of Beatles historiography, because yeah. we do get little slips in interviews where he will discuss having read Revolution in the Head or certainly being familiar with Shout, and that's shaped his promotion of his version of events, and just knowing what he agrees with and what he doesn't. And that's really an element in Beatles historiography that's also important right now. If you are an author in Beatles historiography, the fact that Paul is still alive to dispute what you say, and he is a primary source. So again, that doesn't mean what he says is gospel, but it also means that you can't just flat out ignore him. That's, that's a tricky issue. Hmm. Howard Soane's is a biography I, th- I read which was 2010 maybe which is an interesting interesting look at Paul looks quite a lot of the Heather Mills era uh, in a slightly tabloidy way but he's interesting nonetheless and, I, and he gave an interview around the publication of that book and he said he would get to someone he would get an interview with someone maybe a family member maybe just an associate of Paul and then the trail would stop uh, the interview would be called off or they would just not re- respond to a phone call or whatever. Um, there were some places you can go. He got to Hugh Padgham and speak to Hugh Padgham really, really interestingly about the, the press to play sessions, which was a, a, obviously quite a fraught time for Paul. But yeah, I think Paul's influence over Beatle literature is still looms large, I think. Oh, absolutely. Hmm. And I think that's an element that's going to be true for as long as he is still around. And obviously that's something that holds true for other individuals in Beatles historiography as well, is that these people, as long as they are still alive, want to influence 
how Beatles history is being written. Mm-hmm. Which you can understand, uh, which you can understand. So uh, just, just drawing to conclude now, I was kind of wondering, where do you think Beatle writing, Beatle historiography is, is going to go next? Is there a particular area that you think needs to be looked at or should be looked at? I do think we need more analysis of the psychological issues and elements regarding the Beatles, even just a look at an in-depth look at the influence of fame and how that impacted them. Obviously for me as a historian, it impacted them extensively as sources, but also their dynamics, their relationships with each other, their relationships with their family members. We have sources really from across the time the time spectrum talking about the Beatles in some cases embracing their fame and in some cases resenting it very strongly Mm. I think the fame aspect would be a part of it but also a psychological evaluation written hopefully by someone who is qualified to do that (laughs) because I do think that there are elements regarding all of the Beatles, but particularly John, that need to be expanded on, that need to be discussed, that need to be evaluated. My best guess is that so long as we are in suspension, waiting for the next two volumes of Tune In, that very few other authors are going to attempt to write a group biography. And so they are going to focus on smaller areas, smaller subjects that they can really dig in on and concentrate researching on this one particular time period or year or album um, or aspect perhaps of George Harrison or the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership, elements like that. Because at this point in historiography, in Beatles historiography, trying to write a group biography would almost be taken, even if it's not intended that way, as a challenge to Lewison's interpretation. And I imagine that there are quite a few authors who don't want to, don't want to do that. And again, this is something we've seen before in Beatles historiography, because if you look at Shout and the time period in the early 1980s, you didn't have other group biographies contesting Shout and its preeminent position as the definitive biography of the band. And that's actually, to backtrack a little bit, that's actually one of the issues of why Shout becomes so incredibly influential, despite its admitted bias, despite its very serious methodological flaws. I think it's Ian McDonald in Revolution in the Head, who flat out says, Shout is a biased book against Paul McCartney, But if you're looking for a biography of the band, it's the best one you're going to get. Hmm. And this is in 1994. Hmm. So the reality that there wasn't another source, another biography available to you was an element in in Shout's preeminence. And I think I would be very surprised if we see someone else try to put forth a Beatles biography certainly before the publication, at least of volume two of Tune In, which isn't coming till 2023. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? But it's coming. That's, that's, that's the main thing. I suppose just, again, just backtracking slightly, the, what you do get through the 80s is you get, you get Coleman, 
you get Connolly and you get Goldman all drastically different pictures of John that those those books paint for me actually I think the one that stands up is the Ray Connolly book I, I read it only this year at some point at the start of lockdown I was like to, to go back into it um and I think that that stands up really well so yeah you have those three major biographies that are all about John which tie in with obviously the you know John's the star of of, of shout so um the McCartney when it's Salovich is this the first one really I think you've got the the Chris Welsh book and the Chet Flippo book that come out but you know they're they're both quite lightweight in comparison yeah. to the the kind of weightiness that all three of those but particularly Coleman and Goldman uh, kind of put forth so um yeah it's the 80s really is 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 kind of John's decade in a way somewhat ironically oh very much and you can see that again. One thing that I urge anyone listening to this podcast to pay attention to, again, when you look at the bibliography of a book, is what other sources that bibliography is using. And you have a lot of sources that even to this day use Shout or use Ray Coleman. (laughs) And there are some significant methodological errors in those books and if you are going to use a Shout or a Ray Coleman as an author, then my advice would certainly be to include a footnote discussing the serious methodological flaws in those books. And it doesn't have to be, you know, half a page or anything like that, but discuss the lack of documentation, discuss the lack of bibliography, discuss the bias, and address the issue because you are using a source that has some pretty serious flaws. And that means if you're doing it unquestioningly, then you're almost implicitly endorsing that source. Mm. And actually, to go back to Lewison, the most disappointing aspect of tune in for me because again documentation is what i really pay attention to bibliographies is he does evaluate and analyze some primary sources and that you will have him discussing an interview given by paul or george and talk about maybe how an element of it wasn't entirely accurate and I can't come, with any, come up with any specific examples right now, but there is some excellent source analysis in his bibliography. But the most disappointing aspects of that to me is that in at least the edition I read, I did not see any analysis or evaluation from him regarding Lenin Remembers. And I thought that was a significant omission because it is a source he uses quite often And it is a cornerstone work or a cornerstone source in Beatles historiography. I know he is familiar with historical methodology because I've seen him reference in other interviews certain aspects of historical methodology. And I was surprised and disappointed that he didn't include that evaluation of one of the most important interviews and primary sources in all Beatles historiography when he did for other primary sources and interviews. Maybe volume two will will produce that. We'll, um, we'll as I said, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, and so, just to conclude, Erin, if if I could, the after you'd written the book, did that leave you with uh, 
a bit of a distaste for for Beatle literature for, for a while, or, or or did it did it fire your enthusiasm to to try and read as, as even more? Oh, I still keep up with Beatle literature. I do have a blog where for some time I reviewed different Beatles books. That's on hiatus now. I had two kids in the space of three years. The youngest is nine months now, and the older of the two is two and a half years. So I have not had much time for reading and reviewing books. But I'm still very interested in Beatles historiography. I still find the story compelling. But the great thing is that I find the historiography just as interesting as the actual story. Me too. <laughs> Me too, absolutely. Uh, well, Erin, this has been a really revelatory and interesting uh, hour. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I had a great time. Thank you.